You're listening to a sermon from Sojourn East. Morning, peace be with you. Thanks for joining us this Christmas Eve morning. My name is Kevin, and I serve as the lead pastor here. We're really grateful that you have chose to spend this morning with us, which is also, today it's the last Sunday of Advent, and we've been in a series talking about this season in the church in which we simultaneously celebrate the fact that Christ has come, and we anticipate and look forward to the day that he will return. And we've said that Advent is a season of tension. It's a season of waiting and longing. Isaiah, the prophet, captures the spirit of this season well. In Isaiah 64, with a pretty intense prayer, he prays, Oh, that you, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Now, it's intense, and we might not all, all say it in the same way Isaiah said it, but, but I think he's speaking to a longing and a desire that's pretty universal, whether you consider yourself religious or not. It's this, this, this thing inside of us that when we see our world, and in particular when we see the senseless suffering that people endure, or the awful things that people can do to one another, or just, just how brutal life can be, we all have this sense of like, God, if you're there, would you please do something about this? Like rend the heavens, tear them open, and would you come down? If you see what we see, then why don't you come down and do something about it? And what we celebrate tomorrow morning is that God did tear open the heavens and he did come down. But unlike in Isaiah's prayer, the mountains did not tremble. And the nations didn't quake. Truth be told, hardly anyone even noticed he was born. Because he came into the world just as we come into the world. And the only account we have of the actual birth of Christ is in Luke 2, which Steph read for us a few minutes ago. In Luke 2, verses 1 to 3 tell us that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar. He was Rome's first emperor. And the reason he issued this census was for the purpose of taxes. His empire was expanding, and he needed money to pay his military so that he could conquer the world. And as the most powerful man in the world, when he issued a decree, the whole world responded, including a couple of just common, ordinary people from a common, ordinary place called Nazareth. Luke tells us that in response to this decree, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged 
to be married to him and expecting a child. So this journey that they had to go on from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's about 70 miles. It's about kind of the distance from here to Lexington. So in one sense, it's not too far, but to walk there and especially to walk when you're pregnant, that would be quite the journey, but they had to do it. And then they arrive and while they're there, Mary gives birth to the Son of God. And there's only two verses that were given that describe the birth. It's verses 6 and 7. We're told that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's not a lot of details given to us about this birth. But there are some clues that we can kind of look into that that help help us understand a little bit more of what happened on that day. The first, which we all know, is there was no room at the inn. There was no guest room available, which is interesting if you stop and think about it. Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. He's got his pregnant wife. And yet he can't pull any strings or make any calls or leverage any relationships, call in any favors to get a room for them, which means they, they didn't have a lot of influence. The birth most likely happened in a stable, and we know this because we're told that Mary placed Jesus in a manger, which is a feed trough. And the birth, uh, we're also told that Mary is the one who wrapped him in cloths, which means there was probably no doctor or midwife at the birth, that they were probably alone. Now, I I say all of this because we have our manger scenes, and I love manger scenes, but but oftentimes we can sentimentalize the birth of Jesus. You know, everyone's smiling and happy, including the oxen and the cows. Like, their faces are glowing and clean. Everyone's so clean in the manger scenes when you think about having a child born in a stable. Everything's bright and pleasant, but in reality, every detail we actually have about Christ's birth says it wasn't pleasant. It was actually pretty brutal. And it was the exact opposite of what Isaiah and countless others, the people of God, had prayed and expected. God came and the mountains didn't tremble. The nations didn't quake. The only shaking was that night, that family in the stable outside who are shivering from the cold air. And so this forces the question, the question of Christmas, why? Why was the Son of God born in a stable and not in a palace? Or even just, even, why was there not even a room at the inn? I mean, surely the Lord of creation could have called in some favors to secure a roof and four walls and a door and a crib to prepare for the birth of his son in earth. But he didn't. When God tore open the heavens and he came down, he came in poverty and in obscurity. I heard someone once say, one of the great mysteries of life is why when God became man, he spent his first night in a barn. Now, the answer to those questions, the clearest and most concise answer we're given in Scripture is 
is found in John 3, a couple of very famous verses, where John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, I know because the guy with the sign at the baseball games, this verse has kind of been maybe played out in our generation. But what's being said here is the greatest truth the scriptures contain. Because what's being said here is that God's posture towards the world, it's not indifference, it's not hatred, and it's not disgust. That God, when he, he looks upon the world... He's filled with love. He loves the world. And he loves the people of the world. Now, when we look at the world, we see a lot of things that are not all that lovable. We actually see a lot of evil things. And so, again, this is kind of like, so why, would, why does God love a world that's filled with so much that is unlovable and filled with so much sin and darkness? And the answer to that question is in Genesis. The answer to that question is that this world exists because God created it. And everything that exists in this world exists because God created it. He spoke it into being. All that there is or ever will be has its origin in God. Now, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, sin comes, and it distorts our world. It distorts us, makes us do things we don't want to do and not do things we should do. It, it takes root in every human heart. We all fall short, not just of God's ideals, but even our own ideals. And yet, while sin, from God's perspective, while sin has marred and distorted the original goodness of creation, it hasn't eliminated it. Now, if you're tracking with what I'm saying here, this is where God is very different than most of us. You see, most of us, when we encounter bad things or broken things, we tend to like just want to throw them away or destroy them. Or think of bad people. When we encounter like really sinful people or we're sinned against, like our response is we want to like relationally, we'll cut them off. We won't return their phone calls. We won't inhabit the same spaces as them maybe at a bigger level, like we try to put them in jail or maybe we drop bombs on them, that the way we deal with problems as humans is we tend to tear things down and destroy them. But God is not like us. God, God doesn't desire to destroy the world. He doesn't, he didn't send his son, as John says, in to condemn the world. And, and I think there's a couple of ways you can think of that, but one is like, you know, a building inspector condemning a building. Like, this building has been condemned. Or like an insurance adjuster going and saying, you know what, for what it would take to repair this place, it would be cheaper and easier just to wipe it all out and start over. He didn't send his son in to total the world. He sent his son to redeem and rehabilitate the world and us. You see, even though this world has fallen, even though we are fallen, God loves us like a parent loves 
a wayward child. And his desire is not to condemn, but to save. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah asked God, he said, make your name known to your enemies. And I can imagine that what Isaiah is getting at is like, show them who you are. Show them that you are Yahweh the Lord. Show them that you are El Shaddai, the mighty one. (laughs) The great irony is at the birth of Christ, God did make his name known. Through an angel, God tells Joseph that Mary, this is in Matthew 1, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, make your name known to your enemies. And he gives two names. Jesus, which means God saves. Which is why when God entered the world, he didn't come as a warrior, but he came as a child. That's why he came in weakness and died in weakness, because his goal wasn't to crush us, but to save us. He is Jesus, and he is Emmanuel which means God with us. Which means that, I mean, this is the great mystery of the incarnation, that God sees a world that is broken and fractured and flawed and filled with sin. Not only does he not condemn it, he says, I'm going to rehabilitate it, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to actually enter into it alongside of you. This is the meaning of the manger and the stable. You know, he's born in a stable. Like the modern day equivalent, he was born in a garage. He stepped down, he entered into the mud and muck and heartache and trials of life. I mean, just think about his birth. The events surrounding his birth are like two of the greatest annoyances in life, right? Number one, taxes. And number two, moving. God's like, I, I want them to identify with the people in, sympathize with them in their weaknesses. So I'm going to make him be born around taxes and put the family on the move. Like God, God is not somewhere way out there. God is one who, who was born in the mud and who knows what it's like to live in a world filled with taxes and tyrants and crowded hotels and selfish people who got here first, and they're not going to give up their seed even for a pregnant woman who's about to go into labor. He's a God who knows something about aching, blistered feet, walking through the sand. He's a God who knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends and abandoned. And a God who knows what it's like to suffer and die on a cross. And the reason God tore open the heavens was for this expressed purpose. In order to redeem and rehabilitate us towards God. This is why what we celebrate tomorrow morning, it is the greatest news. Martin Luther, 
he has some really great stuff on the incarnation. He said this, though. He said, to me, there is no greater consolation given to mankind than this, that Christ became man, a child, a babe, playing in the lap and upon the chest of his most gracious mother. Who is there whom this sight would not comfort? Now has overcome the power of sin, death, hell, a guilty conscience. If you come to this gurgling babe and believe that he has come not to judge you, but to save you. You know, I recognize that, that we're all in different places spiritually. Some of you, you woke up this morning just amped because the next 36, 48 hours are like the best 48 hours of the year. Others of you, you probably came because your parents or maybe your kids asked you to come and you agreed as a Christmas gift. And I would say thank you for, for giving them that gift. What I do want to say is wherever you are, like the good news of Christmas is for you. And if you were here and you're not a Christian, we're not big on hard cells or emotional manipulation here, but I do want you to know that God is not out to get you. Like Luther elsewhere, he says, the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. God created you. His desire is not to condemn you, but to redeem you, to bring you into life with him. This is why he came. And if you want to know more about the fullness of life that Jesus offers us, like we're here every week. We'd love to meet with you. We have pastors, staff. Like we're, we're around, and we would love to help you on that journey. I would say if you are here and you're a Christian, I want you to know that God is not against you and that God is not out to get you, that you are loved by him and you are safe in his keeping regardless of, of whatever momentary trials and struggles you're going through. You know, whatever you're carrying in with you today, whatever you're going home to this afternoon or maybe not going home to, whatever the next few hours or days hold for you, I want you to know that the birth of Christ is God's invitation to all of us to come to him as we are, not as we wish we were, as we really are, to be saved and to be healed. This is the good news of Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me pray. Thanks for listening. For more information about our church, visit sojourneast.com.